From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Thanks for inviting me into your home as always. Say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett. I always enjoy hearing from you. I I get a tremendous amount of uh, response from those listening around the world to the podcast. Of course, those in Ontario, Quebec, and uh, some, I think it's about 28 states, listening in on AM740 Zoomer Radio, and of course, around the world on zoomerradio.ca. You can listen to the live stream, zoomerradio.ca, like Shane Jones, who just tweeted me this uh, about uh, 10 minutes ago. Uh, Shane listens to the stream in uh, the UK, when Shane can stay awake. Uh, so thanks for that, Shane. A special hello to, uh, to uh, a special hello to all of you listening in via one of our, our growing list of affiliates as well. Stations like WPAM in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, uh, KBUFAM in Wichita, KLFDAM in Minneapolis, KOTA in Rapid City, South Dakota, to name just a few. Uh, also, very quickly, wanted to say thanks to uh, Dr. Douglas James Cottrell. Canada's Edgar Casey, who's a, a remarkable and talented, intuitive healer, remote viewer. Uh, Douglas will be on the program next week, incidentally. He has a brand new book uh, out, 30 Years in the Making, he says. It's a collection of, of medical wisdom, natural remedies that Douglas dictated to his son, Douglas Jr., while in a deep meditative state. So in a sense, the book, uh, entitled The Complete New Age Health Guide, uh, was written by Douglas's soul mind. Uh, anyway, as I say, he'll be with us in studio right off the top. Uh, but Douglas, um, I wanted to say thanks because he's been sending out some healing prayers for a couple of people in my life that are very important to me. And I just wanted Douglas to know that I am eternally grateful for that. You're a good friend, Douglas. Uh, don't forget to register and become a member at richardserrett.com. I know, I know, I've been very negligent in publishing my newsletter, The Dead Drop, uh, but now that uh, the summer has come and gone, I'll get back on the case and start publishing more regularly uh, very soon. Uh, just click on the blue member area log, log in button on the left-hand side of the homepage at richardserrett.com. The blue member, uh, it's called a member area login. And uh, click on that and just follow the instructions. Uh, once again, don't forget to order your passes for my, for my all-day conference, Follow the Truth, the Conspiracy Show Summit, coming this November the 16th at the Region Theater. Six remarkable speakers. And we've added past life regression therapist Debbie Papadakis. She's going to regress someone on stage during the conference. It could even be you. For more information, visit followthetruth.tv. You can order your passes by calling the box office at 905 721 3399 use the code word Roswell and receive a 25% uh, discount off the cost of your ticket. Now, uh, very quickly, if you go to followthetruth.tv right now, scroll down. We've posted a question there. Find the question. Then, do a little bit of research, won't take you long, find the answer to that question and uh, call Tim in studio now. We'll take the first two callers with the correct answer and uh, you'll get a pair of passes. So a pair of passes to the first two callers. That's two tickets each to follow the truth dot, uh, the follow the truth summit. And, uh, but you've got to go on follow the truth TV, find the question and then find the answer to that question. We'll take the first two correct answers and you'll win uh, a couple of, pa- uh, a couple of pairs of uh, tickets. All right. Uh, earlier this week, I had the pleasure of appearing on Tim Banal's wildly uh, popular uh, podcast, Banal of America. And uh, I work with Tim from time to time when I'm fortunate to host uh, Coast to Coast. Uh, Tim, of, Tim is uh, one of Coast's fine webmasters, and he, and he also does this wildly popular uh, podcast. It's now in its eighth year, I believe. And you can listen to the uh, to my interview with Tim on iTunes. But Tim started to sh- to started the show uh, this past week saying he hadn't produced a podcast in a while uh, because uh, throughout most of the summer, He'd much rather be gathered around a campfire with his friends, swapping ghost stories and, and, and enjoying a few wobbly pops. Uh, and I'm wondering if Tim had occasion to read my next guest's latest book. It's an anthology of spooky, eerie, and just plain old weird tales about ghosts, cryptids, UFOs, angels, demons, interdimensional contact, and more. And it's just perfect for an evening by the campfire or for scaring your friends. It's called... It was a dark and creepy night, real-life encounters with the strange, mysterious, and downright terrifying. 
Joshua P. Warren was born in Asheville, North Carolina. He published his first book, get this, at the age of 14. My word, I was still wetting the bed when I was 14. <laughs> Just kidding. Anyway, uh, since then, Joshua has published more than a dozen books and has appeared on the Travel Channel, History Channel, National Geographic, Discovery, and many more networks. He's a popular public speaker. He was featured at the International UFO Congress, Ghost Fest, and the S. CSS Conference on Cryptozoology. He hosts a syndicated paranormal program, Speaking of Strange, airing Saturday nights from the flagship station News Radio 570 WWNC in Asheville, North Carolina. And this is his first visit to the Conspiracy Show. Joshua P. Warren, welcome aboard. How are you? Hey, thank you, Richard. I'm very excited to be with you tonight, so uh, thank you for the invitation. You wrote your first book when you were 14. Just What was that about? Well, you know, in a way, it kind of um, was similar, maybe, to It Was a Dark and Creepy Night, except those were fictional stories. Uh, in the beginning, I couldn't figure out if I wanted to be a fiction or a nonfiction writer, and so I wrote a book of fictional, scary short stories and poems. Uh, it was called Joshua Warren's Gallery of Mystery and Suspense, and more than anything, that helped me by getting me a job as a reporter at the age of 15 for the local newspaper. And so uh, I, at that time, couldn't even legally drive. So I'd have my mom or dad drive me around, and uh, I would often find myself in the backwoods of the mountains of western North Carolina talking to people about spooky old ghost stories, haunted houses, weird creatures that were seeing, you know, flying around over the barnyard, etc. And uh, I, I wondered if there was any truth to these things. And so to become a better writer, I became a better journalist. And to be a better journalist, I became a better scientist. And so now, um, you know, I, I'm always out there looking for something that sort of uh, pushes the boundaries. And this new book, It Was a Dark and Creepy Night, takes that to an international level. And, and uh, you had sort of three um, three rules when you were writing this book. I mean, they had to be... They had to be terrifying. They had to be sort of documented as truth, and they had to be short, and they are. I mean, many of these are, are a half page, a page, a page and a half at the most, uh, and, and as a result, I mean, this is just chock full of, of anecdotal evidence. Uh, but did you, have, did you have a hard time getting people to open up uh, about this, or do you find, as I have sort of discovered over the years, that people – while they don't talk about it over the water cooler at work for fear of being uh, ridiculed by their colleagues, they are aching for someone who understands they, they want that person to, they want a confessor, really. Oh, absolutely. In fact, it, it honestly seems like the paranormal is becoming more and more normal every single year. Hence the popularity of shows like yours and all of the television shows that we see on so many different channels and networks. And uh, I really had no problem collecting these stories. And, you know, I, I realized that at some point, you know, the, the Internet and the interconnectedness of all people in the world would make a project like this appropriate. And, uh, and, and last year was the, the year when that finally sort of solidified. And so when I told people, yes, send me an experience that has to be true, meaning that at least you're willing to put your legal name to it, and, and you're willing to stand up and say, hey, this is what happened to me. And then, yes, it has to be short. And three, it needs to make the hair stand up on the back of your neck. But it doesn't matter if it's necessarily dealing with what you think of as ghosts or UFOs or cryptids or ESP or angels or demons or synchronicity or my very favorite category, other. Uh, you just send me whatever was was odd at the time you experienced it. And one of the things I love about this collection, and there are about, a, I think, around 150 of these stories from around the world, is that they're not categorized into these sections like, well, this is the ghost chapter, this is the UFO chapter, this is the Bigfoot chapter. Instead, they're kind of just randomly distributed throughout. So what that means is that as you're reading someone's experience, you don't know how that particular tale is going to turn out. You don't know until you get to the end, and therefore it's a much more realistic way of, of reading these tales because when somebody experiences the paranormal, and goodness knows I have on a number of occasions in my life, you don't 
generally know it's happening to you while it's happening. It's kind of confusing, and then it's only when it's over that you're able to look back in retrospect and say, whoa, you know, what just occurred here? And that's when the categorization begins. And so uh, this book, I, I think, is rather unique in the fact that uh, as you're reading it, you don't know what direction you're going through and uh, or what, what direction you're going into. And therefore, uh, it really does feel more like you're having the experience as you're putting yourself in that person's shoes. Joshua P. Warren is with us in his brand new anthology. Anthology is entitled, It Was a Dark and Creepy Night, Real-Life Encounters with the Strange, Mysterious, and Downright Terrifying. You're not just a, a chronicler, uh, Joshua, and, and, a, and a writer, and a, and a darn good one at that, but you're, you also take a kind of a, a scientific approach. You're a researcher in this field, and I'm wondering whether you've uh, sort of arrived at any conclusion about this vast and varied uh, uh, field of, 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 of the paranormal as to whether there may be underlying all of it some common denominator. I've had uh, this conversation with, uh, with Rosemary Ellen Guiley, uh, from time to time and, um, she's sort of working, you know, to, to arrive at some sort of a conclusion. What do you think? Is there a common denominator, something that might explain many or all of these, these various phenomena? Well, you know, that's a great question, and, and absolutely, I do believe that in many cases there is a common denominator. And, and, in fact, one of the reasons that I thought so deeply about this was because I, I wrote a book a few years ago called uh, The Secret Wisdom of Kukul Khan. And in this book, I was searching to use one kind of general catch-all term that I could use when referring to these beings, ghosts, aliens, mothmen, cryptids, and I couldn't really find a good one that existed. And so in order to, to create a term that would make my, uh, my wording flow a bit more smoothly, I thought, well, what is, you know, just one kind of, you know, blanket connection here? And uh, it, it reminded me very much of the quote by Charles Fort that you can measure a circle beginning anywhere. And so it seems like all these things do have a connection. And the more I thought about it, the more I felt an appropriate term was paratemporals for these beings. Para meaning beyond, temporal meaning time. And I say that because if you look at some of the most outstanding examples of the, the so-called paranormal, time appears to play a crucial role when you dig deeply. For example, with ghosts, Obviously, people often say they are looking back in time or they're seeing a person the way he or she appeared in the past, even though that person may be dead now. So that's an easy one. Joshua, I'm gonna, sorry, I'm going to jump in here and just uh, uh, pardon the interruption. We'll take a time out. We'll come back and we'll drill down a little further on uh, paratemporal uh, phenomena with Joshua P. Warren. It was a dark and creepy night right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Joshua P. Warren is with us, a native of Asheville, North Carolina. Hey, uh, uh, another native from Asheville, Micah Hanks, uh, uh, also sort of in the same uh, same field. Uh, what is it about Asheville uh, that uh, uh, produces not only such fine writers, but, but people of a sort of a paranormal bent? Is it something in the water, Joshua? Well, you know, as a matter of fact, uh, not only have Micah and I worked together on a variety of uh, research projects over the years, but we discovered that we're actually cousins. So uh, maybe the genetics has something to do with the interest. But, you know, um, Asheville sits in the heart of the oldest mountains in North America. And uh, you obviously have uh, many of these uh, sort of amazing stories being preserved uh, and passed along in the traditional sense. But also, um, one thing I find noteworthy from an investigator's point of view is that you find some of the purest quartz crystal in the world around Asheville. And quartz has a very interesting relationship with electricity. If you apply stress to quartz, it produces electricity. And if you apply electricity to quartz, it resonates. And um, therefore, you get a variety of uh, odd electromagnetic anomalies when quartz is present. And, of course, you hear that also related to ghosts and paranormal phenomena. So it could be the whole region is kind of like a big power supply for the otherworldly. Oh, that's fascinating. I had not made that connection before. 
you mentioned that uh, of all sort of the categories of the paranormal, you, you know, whether we're talking UFOs, shadow people, ghosts, uh, uh, cryptids, your favorite, uh, your favorite category is other. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe explain what you mean by that and then maybe give us an example of uh, your, your favorite story in the book, the anthology that's in the other category. Yeah, you know, the, the first one that pops to mind is a story from a lady who had a, a weird experience in Colorado in 2011. She went to Walmart to purchase a digital camera, went into the electronics department, picked her camera out, purchased it, went home, uh, unpackaged it from the fresh new wrapping, put the new batteries inside, turned it on, and lo and behold, there was a photograph already on the camera of her from that same day wearing the same outfit. Oh, my. Wow. <laughs> now, uh, when, you, when you hear these stories, uh, what sort of uh, journalistic uh, tools do you employ to sort of you know, test the veracity of that story? For example, did she produce the photograph? Well, you know, in this particular case, we didn't include photographs in the book, so I have not seen that photograph. And, you know, at the beginning of the show, you were pointing out the sort of connection between this particular book and sitting around a campfire sharing stories. So that was the approach and the attitude that I took, that if somebody was was willing to say, look, this is a true story, I want to share it, and, and it seemed entertaining and interesting enough, I put it in the book. But... I can't say that any of these stories are absolutely true unless I know the person who experienced it. Now, of course, that's unusual for me. Uh, Usually I'm out there actively trying to validate things, verify things. In fact, just recently it appeared that a fantastic photograph of a full-bodied apparition was captured in downtown Asheville, and uh, I put the crack team to work, and we solve the mystery. It was actually a, a, a ghost tour guide who had accidentally popped into a photograph, and uh, and the photograph was lit in just a way to make it look like a ghost. So I'm always happy to be the first person to point out if, if there's a more uh, logical or, or practical explanation rather than jumping to a paranormal conclusion. But for this book, we loosened up those rules. Sure, sure. But one of the differences between uh, the stories in this book, and as you say, there's, what, about 150 of them, uh, as opposed yeah. to the ones that uh, get swapped around the campfire and while people are enjoying a few wobbly pops, is that, uh, you know, eventually the ones that you're going to hear around the campfires are going to start to sound familiar because they are, you know, they are sort of those legendary uh, bits of folklore that have been passed down in the oral tradition around campfires for, you know, maybe a hundred years or more. But these are, in your book, in It Was a Dark and Creepy Night, they're all original. I mean, I've not, there are no antecedents to these that I can tell. I've I've never heard of any of these before, which tends to suggest, I mean, these are unique experiences. Yeah, absolutely. Every year I analyze, I would say, and this I know this sounds unbelievable, but usually close to a thousand supposedly uh, paranormal images. And I travel around the world speaking at conferences, uh, investigating, you know, out, outstanding sites, and, and I hear a lot of stories. And as soon as some new app comes out that allows you to insert a pre-manufactured full-bodied apparition in your photograph on your cell phone, you know, I start seeing those images. And so I, I kind of stay on top of what uh, what is common. And uh, that's one of the things I kept in mind as I was looking through the deluge of stories that came in from around the world. The ones that I picked, they definitely had, uh, dare I call it, a ring of truth, meaning that in many cases the stories don't fit together into a nice, neat little package with a bow around it that, you know, usually you hear these scary ghost stories and such, and uh, each element is so uh, nicely formed that the whole story kind of collapses like a house of cards. But in reality, often when someone has a paranormal experience, something weird happens, and then boom, it's over, and they are not sure what happened, and there is no closure. And you get that sense often when you're reading through these stories that in some cases, uh, in fact, I would say in, in most of these stories, really, uh, there's a sense that uh, 
we don't know exactly what just happened to this person. And it's that kind of um, moment where this mystery is still ringing uh, in the air that uh, makes us feel we're actually glimpsing into something we truly don't understand. Well, we're, 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 we're not sitting around a campfire tonight, although I've always looked at, at radio as sort of the electronic bonfire or an electronic campfire. So while we're, we're gathered around, uh, could you share maybe one of your, your favorite uh, ghost stories from the anthology? Yeah, this is one that I found um, outstanding because it actually does kind of neatly fit together. I mean, this is the kind of story that you actually could tell around a campfire, and it would... Um, perfectly uh, fit the bill. Uh, this story comes to us from 1997, Minnesota. Uh, a young couple moved into a house in a rather charming little neighborhood, and after they had lived there for about, uh, oh, three days, they woke up one morning, went into the bathroom, and discovered that somehow the butcher knife from the kitchen had ended up in the bathtub. Um, they'd not been using the butcher knife, so this was a very weird thing. Why would it be in there to begin with? And over the next three years, this continued to happen. From time to time, the butcher knife would be in the bathtub. So uh, after three years, they threw a party and invited uh, most of their neighbors over. And at some point, this story came up, and that's when some of her neighbors sort of uh, rolled their eyes and said, well, you do know, don't you, that... In the 1960s, the lady who owned this house committed suicide in the bathtub with a butcher knife. There you go. Oh, my. Yeah, that's uh, that's not something you want to hear. Uh, what's The other impressive uh, thing is, as you say, these people attach uh, their names uh, to it, so it's it's sort of, uh, you know, it's been cemented now. Uh, their name is attached to this story, and it's a permanent record that will live uh, for eternity. Uh, but not only do they attach their name, also their occupation. And, and there are, um, there's, for example, an employee of the uh, um, Department of Homeland Security with a with a story in here. There's a police officer uh, from uh, Pencil- Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, a border patrol uh, agent, uh, uh, mechanical engineers, uh, you name it. I mean, it's a very broad spectrum of, of the population. And uh, uh, a security guard. They often, you know, obviously, uh, they see a lot of uh, a lot of strange things working late night hours. Uh, are you more impressed, or uh, does it matter when you hear a story like this from, uh, let's say, I, um, I don't know, someone who has letters behind their name, uh, a, a PhD, or a, a commercial airline pilot who, who sees a UFO, rather than, let's say. Um, a member of the Great Unwashed, like myself? Uh, well, generally, I do find that it, it is more impressive, especially when you're talking about somebody like a police officer, uh, somebody who is trained as, as much as anybody can be in uh, how to you know, properly uh, discern uh, fact from fiction and record it. Um, and, of course, obviously, sometimes a person will have expertise in an area that isn't related to his or her experience. So that is to say, you might find somebody who um, is a pilot, but uh, and, and that might give him um, uh, better credentials analyzing a UFO experience, but it doesn't help him much when it comes to seeing a Bigfoot in his backyard. So uh, it, you do have to consider that. But generally speaking, yeah, you know, it makes you think that this is a person who uh, maybe at least has a, a higher level of concentration uh, to, to achieve those things. And, uh, in fact, you know, the, the story the police lady from Philadelphia sent in, I believe, was one of my favorites as well. So uh, I'm happy to share that with you at some point if you'd like. Yeah, let's, let's do that now before we go into a break, please. Okay. Uh, police officer, she had been working on the force many, many years. A single mother would usually get home all around 11.30 p.m. at night. And so uh, she arrives home. About 11.30, she walked past her teenage son's bedroom, and right as she walked past, she heard his cell phone ring. And so she paused to see if he was going to wake up and answer it, but he didn't. So she went on to her room and went to sleep. So the next morning, she was having breakfast, and he came down. And he said, Mom, did you call my cell phone last night? And she said, No. Why? 
And uh, he said, yeah, you know, my cell phone rang. And she goes, well, I remember your cell phone ringing. And uh, he said, yeah, but it said that it came from inside the house. And, of course, they only had two landlines in the house, and there's no one who can explain who was in her house that night and who made that call. Oh, it wasn't her. <laughs> boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, gotta, we've got a few minutes here. i got to get you to tell me about the, uh, uh, the strange woman who said she remembered Lincoln's funeral and then vanished. Yeah, absolutely. That is actually the first story in the book, and uh, I think it's just because it really sets the atmosphere. Uh, this story comes to us from um, Denver, Colorado, 1996. Jennifer Donnelly, a security officer, said that she and her sister would often play on a little trail uh, at the edge of the woods behind their parents' apartment complex. And uh, one day, uh, as they were looking around uh, the woods, they noticed this odd, sort of um, eerie old lady who appeared to be very kind of out of place startled her at first when the old lady appeared, and she looked at them with a big, big friendly smile and said, oh, these lilacs are just lovely, aren't they? They're my favorite flower. They smell so good. And she just kept talking to the girls about the lilacs. And at one point she said, I can remember them at Lincoln's funeral, the smell of them, so strong. It was sad, but they still remain my favorite. And the girl said, Lincoln, President Lincoln? And she said, yes. Oh, the grand funeral I'm sure you remember it. And the girl said, well, no, that's been a long time ago. And the woman just seemed to blow them off. And then shortly thereafter, she was gone. She vanished. They never saw that woman again. But uh, Jennifer Donnelly did research and found out that when Abraham Lincoln died, and they were really touring his corpse around, it was known as the funeral of flowers because soldiers were throwing, of all things, lilacs on the street in front of his carriage. The blooms were crushed, releasing that scent, and it was one of the most memorable things for those who actually were there. And she said even writing this story down had her skin prickling again after all those years. Wow, that is a remarkable story. Uh, It was a dark and creepy night, and it's full of uh, such stories. Joshua P. Warren is my guest. Uh, Last night, uh, the mighty Aphrodite and I were watching. We have a a DVD collection of of, uh, The Night Stalker, uh, Darren McGavin. Uh, played Carl Kolchak, of course. I don't know if you remember that series. Going back, uh, it wasn't uh, the the pilot was uh, very scary. It was about a vampire. The series that lasted, I think, one season back in the mid seventies, not so great. But I was watching an episode last night. It's called The Sentry, uh, about this um, a reptilian creature uh, that uh, inhabits uh, subterranean Chicago. And it uh, mauls a couple of people to death. And then I'm reading, lo and behold, uh, a story in your book, Joshua, uh, from a retired software architect from Wichita Falls back in uh, 1962. Do you remember the story, First Grade Tulpas, about the bipedal, oh, yeah. the bipedal reptilian monster? Can you tell me a little bit about that, or am I, I don't want to put you on the spot because I know you've got 150 stories in here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, the odd thing is I don't have all the stories memorized, but uh, in that particular one, I, I honestly I don't remember all the details, but I found it fascinating that this monstrous reptilian creature essentially was haunting this kid's uh, property, and. Uh, the, the idea of a tulpa is really fascinating to me because it implies that sometimes we can create our own monsters in a very literal way, that we are able to actually think about some type of a being or a creature and externalize it, and it will actually take on some form or some shape that we create. And, uh, of course, that's uh, what may have happened in this particular kid's case, and I think it's wonderful that we are able to look not only at creatures that may exist as normal biological organisms, but creatures that may exist as, well, thought forms as well. Uh, well, that's a, a fascinating idea that's even worth uh, exploring further, um, because there are certain uh, creatures, uh, Bigfoot, for example, these uh, mystery jungle cats in, in the UK where people are seeing black panthers and tigers uh, in, uh, you know, a suburb of London, England, for crying out loud, uh, leads one to, to wonder whether they may in fact be a manifestation of the mind and they flit in and out 
of our dimension. Back with more of my conversation with Joshua P. Warren. It was a dark and creepy night. Real life encounters with the strange, mysterious, and downright terrifying. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Joshua P. Warren is with us, and uh, his latest, it's an anthology and a good one, just jam-packed uh, with ghost stories. You know, the weather, we're heading into uh, to autumn, but there's still some great campfire weather ahead of us, so grab a copy, and uh, I mean, you could be up all night uh, entertaining your friends and scaring your friends with It Was a Dark and Creepy Night, Real Life Encounters with the Strange, Mysterious, and Downright Terrifying. Uh, do you have a favorite? I mean, you mentioned uh, sort of the other category, uh, but do you have a, a, a favorite sort of within the uh, the cryptozoology field or cryptid um, uh, encounters? Yeah, I certainly do. And, and by the way, uh, I've actually been told that I should warn people not to read this book late at night because I have already started getting <laughs> reports from people saying, I've been having terrible dreams ever since I started reading this book before I go to bed, but... Hey, it just depends on, you know, your cup of tea, I suppose. But, uh, yes, Richard, when it comes to um, cryptids, uh, obviously it's uh, easy to find stories these days about Bigfoot or some type of a maybe a Loch Ness monster. But this is a little bit different. This is a story from Lawrence Jagarski, uh, Woodridge, Illinois, 1995. I'm holding it in front of me. He says, I walked out onto balcony of my apartment to smoke. It was approximately 12.30 a.m., and I heard a loud, low whistling sound as if a big wind was picking up. It was then that I saw what I can only describe as a pterodactyl. He goes on to say, this huge thing flew right past his balcony, not five or six feet from him. He said it was so close I could see its big black eye focus on me. Uh, He said it was gray, had no feathers, just small scales, head and neck were not stretched out looking down like you see in science books and museums. Instead, he said it held its head like a pelican with its neck bent in such a way that the base of its skull rested on its backbone. He said it didn't flap its wings. It simply glided, and moments later it was gone. This guy says, you know, I've looked through every book on birds and normal creatures, and the only thing that looks like this is a pterodactyl. And one reason I find that interesting is um, probably about 10 years ago, I investigated a haunted farm in Lancaster, South Carolina, owned by a woman named Lynn Jackson. And this farm was a hot spot for all kinds of weird paranormal phenomena. You could almost call it some type of a portal or, or a warp. And one day, her son uh, went out to feed some animals, and he came running in the house screaming, Mama, there's a monster in the yard, in the barn. And so uh, she went outside and did not see anything, but she believed her son, and she began carrying a camera with her. And on a couple of occasions, she ended up seeing this monster, and she told me the same kind of thing that this man said. She said it looked like a pterodactyl a big winged flying creature, uh, obviously horrifying to see in person. And she took two pictures of this, which, to my knowledge, are absolutely one of a kind. Uh, what's weird in these photos is not only can you certainly see that pterodactyl bat-wing-type form, but even though to her naked eye the creature looked just as solid and corporeal as you or I might, She said, uh, you know, despite this, if you look at the photographs, you will see the being looks kind of translucent and ghostly. As a matter of fact, I have those posted on my website, uh, joshuapwarren.com. If you scroll down, there's a section that says World's Wildest Ghost Photos, and you can click through and see some of my favorites. And I have photos of these pterodactyls. And to me, when you see a creature that weird, and it looks one way to the naked eye, but it comes out looking kind of ethereal on camera. This is an earmark of some kind of an interdimensional being, not necessarily some uh, leftover from eons ago that has managed to, managed to survive, but one of these creatures that might sort of pop in and out of our different dimensions 
because when you study life, there is nothing scientifically to suggest life must exist exclusively at this frequency that you and I call physical. That's an excellent point, uh, which brings us back to, to Bigfoot because, um, you know, one of the explanations on the surface that may sound, you know, pretty out there is that these creatures are, are also in some way interdimensional. Uh, I remember, um, uh, speaking with a researcher talking about tracking one of these uh, creatures in, in Wisconsin and, uh, followed the, 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 uh, the footprints into the woods and in the snow and, in the middle of the woods, these footprints just came to a stop, and no, no creature. Like, so where did this thing go? You know, it didn't climb a tree. Uh, did it? Did it flit out of our dimension and into another? Uh, and then we have, you know, all the, the photographic and video evidence of these of these uh, hairy bipedal creatures. They're 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 fuzzy, of course. The comedian Mitch Hedberg suggested maybe Bigfoot is fuzzy uh, <laughs> and out of focus, but. Um, um, Talk to me a little bit more about about the, the the possibility that many of these cryptids, like Bigfoot, might in fact be interdimensional. Absolutely, I, I believe that there is a, a better chance of that than there is that we have some large undiscovered primate or, or something similar that's running around North America. Because, I mean, every year there are quote-unquote Bigfoot sightings in every single state in the United States, and I'm sure they're spread all over Canada, and yet we don't have any real tangible evidence. And, and what I mean by that is, yes, you can argue whether any evidence has been found, but if, if there's a population big enough to support these sightings, there should be a lot more hair. There should be many more droppings. There should be uh, an enormous uh, sort of impact on the ecology that we just can't find. And we've gotten very, very good as humans at investigating and documenting normal biological life. We, on the other hand, are just in the infancy of understanding life forms that may sort of slip in and out, uh, meaning that there may be creatures that are sort of teetering on the boundary of the physical and the non-physical. And the example you gave is a perfect example where you have somebody chasing uh, a Bigfoot and then suddenly the footprints end in mid-pathway as if this thing has been spirited away. You know, earlier in the show you asked me what I thought the common denominator might be, and I said time. Well, if you apply that to cryptids, something like Bigfoot has obviously shifted his point in space when that happens. And we know that space and time are connected, so there is the element of time. Uh, same thing with UFOs. You have a guy driving down the road in his truck. He sees a UFO. Suddenly his truck stops. And yet when the UFO flies away, the truck just stops starts working again. He doesn't have to turn the ignition. It's as if time itself had stopped and paused the workings of the truck, even though sometimes it doesn't stop our conscious awareness because our brains are like little time machines. Exactly. Listen, uh, time unfortunately marches on. We'll take a quick time out, come back with Joshua, Joshua P. Warren. It was a dark and creepy night. Stay with us. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Uh, welcome back. Joshua P. Warren stays with us uh, for a few moments yet. Uh, I mentioned earlier about uh, the uh, the question uh, on followthetruth.tv. If you can find the question on there, scroll down, find the question, and then find the answer to that question. I neglected to give you the, uh, the studio number uh, to call Tim with the correct answer. And uh, we just heard the big announcer guy here at the station give those numbers out. Let me do it one more time quickly, and then we'll get back to Joshua. So, again, followthetruth.tv. Find the question on that website. Then just do a little uh, a little research. Won't take you long. Get the answer to that question. Uh, be one of the first two callers to call Tim with the answer, and we'll give you a, a pair of uh, ducats to uh, follow the truth. Uh, the Follow the Truth Summit in November in Oshawa, hosted by yours truly. So call Tim at 416-360-0740. 416-360-0740. Toll free one eight six six. 740 
4740. Again, we'll take the first two callers with the correct answer to the question found at followthetruth.tv. Back to uh, Joshua P. Warren. It was a dark and creepy night. Uh, Joshua, what was your uh, entree into this whole field of, of the paranormal? Did you have a personal experience? Well, yeah. I, in fact, when I was uh, a teenager, uh, you know, and of course you mentioned that I published my first book around the age of 14, um, I was greatly influenced by something that actually happened to my family before I was even born. And that was originally what got me interested. And then, of course, as time passed and I started investigating on my own, then I eventually had my own experiences. But um, the story that impacted my family so much occurred during the Great Depression. Uh, my grandmother was named Virginia Brigman, and uh, she lived uh, with her family uh, at a big farmhouse out in the countryside in a place called Barnardsville, North Carolina. And uh, during the Depression era, she herself was rather young. I'm thinking about 13. And at that time, the family, though, was still kind of well off, and they gave her a pretty nice birthday present. She got a camera. And one day, her father, named Jack, and her older brother, who was in his early 20s, named Claude, came back from a small game hunting trip in the mountains, and she photographed them. It's a great picture of these kind of two old rugged mountaineers holding their rabbits and squirrels. And yet when the photo developed, her older brother Claude did not have a head. Um, You could actually see the vegetation behind him. Um, They knew that was weird, but they didn't understand enough about how photography worked to realize just how weird it was. I'll say. Well, one, and then one month later, um, Claude was having lunch on his porch. Uh, Actually, he was on the porch reading a magazine waiting for his lunch and conversing with his father through uh, an open window. And uh, all of a sudden, Jack, the father, said something to Claude, and Claude didn't answer. And Jack went outside, and here was the magazine. But no Claude. And uh, my great-uncle Claude was never seen or heard from again. He had vanished in mid-sentence, almost in the blink of an eye. And that was a big tragedy that deeply affected my family. And it it fired my imagination, uh, wondering if there are other realms and dimensions that people can simply be spirited away into. Oh, my. That is an incredible mystery. Uh, and, and was that disappearance covered in, in, in the media at the time? I mean, was there, was there a large-scale search? Was there speculation as about, uh, about what may have happened? Yes. As a matter of fact, as an adult, I not only went back and interviewed many of the elderly people in the community who told me the exact same version of events, but I also hired a uh, professional historian who is just a, a, almost a forensic bloodhound, and he went back and he documented everything about the case, including um, census records and employment records and everything related to my great-uncle's life, uh, all the way up until that day when it just ended. It just stopped. The paper trail died right there. And, um, yeah, there was lots of speculations. There are some people who said, well, he obviously was murdered because people don't just vanish, but there was never any evidence of that or any motivation for it. And, um, you know, this was something that was so damaging to my family because they never had any closure. And and having that kind of an experience occur within your family allows you to see the paranormal with a much more uh, realistic sort of uh, uh, perspective. And uh, it it sort of uh, opened my mind to uh, the possibility that sometimes these stories you hear are more than just stories. And uh, and that mystery still lingers uh, to this day. That's a, that's a remarkable story. Uh, and how could you not be? How could how could your course in life not be altered uh, with an experience like that? Uh, do you find that that uh, in 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 some cases, many cases, uh, of people that have had a profound paranormal encounter um, are damaged in some way? Um. I don't know if it's, I would say, damaged. It depends on how it affects them. Um, I think it can be certainly damaging if it completely shatters their worldview in a very abrupt, uh, jarring way. Uh, some people can literally have what they call a psychotic break from reality because of a paranormal experience. Uh, in fact, I have a museum in Asheville, North Carolina, called the Asheville Mystery Museum. 
and it's in the basement of the Asheville Masonic Temple, which is a big, uh, glorious four-story building with a spooky attic. And what a great location. Attic. What a great location. <laughs> yeah, it's perfect. And in the attic, we have what's called a psychomantium set up. And the psychomantium is a room that is designed to facilitate some contact with the dead. And uh, I remember when I first started learning how to build these psychomantiums, I went to the Ryan Research Center uh, in North Carolina, which, of course, is famous for pioneering ESP. And they had been doing a lot of psychomantium research. And they warned me. They said, you know, we've seen people who don't believe in anything go into these rooms and have an experience with a full-bodied spirit. And after that, they are... They're gone. You know, mentally, they're not the same person anymore, and they were very adamant about, you know, being careful. So, uh, you know, I, I, I suppose it can happen, uh, especially when you talk to people who believe that something really evil and demonic is, is attacking them. We have a story about that kind of thing in, in the book. Uh, but I think for the most part today, um, when there's so much support available for people to share stories and to try to place their experiences into context through the Internet, um, it's usually just something that has a positive effect because it opens people's minds and uh, it helps them to, to become a more educated person, realizing how, how small we are and how vast, how unimaginably gigantic this mysterious universe really is. Uh, despite the fact, uh, Joshua, that I, uh, I I sort of make a living, uh, sort of, in quotations, uh, uh, you know, talking about these things, uh, uh, I've never had... Uh, a paranormal experience in the sense I've never seen a ghost. I have had an experience uh, seeing what may have been my own astral body. Uh, I've told that story a number of times uh, on the air. Uh, but not a ghost per se. I've never seen a UFO. And part of me, um, cr- you know, craves that experience. I want to have that experience because I, I think it's important, you know, if I'm going to talk about it and I, uh, you know, I'm fully going to understand what people are talking about and what they feel. That I that I have that shared experience. Um, do you uh, do you have you have you seen a ghost? Do, do you do you want to see a ghost? <laughs> well, you know, it took me six years of full time investigation of haunted places before I ever saw a ghost. And in fact, I have reached the point where I believe that maybe some people can see ghosts. Maybe their eyes are different, or their brains work differently. And that some people cannot see ghosts, and, and I was one of those people. I just had accepted that I couldn't see ghosts, and I was fine with that, because I, I believe that people like you are just as valuable, because you can, you can relate to the experiences from another perspective, from the perspective of having an open mind and listening to what people have to say. You switch to a whole different world when you see one, though. And at that point, you become, well, just another person with a great story. But in my case, I was contacted by a young woman, a college student, who had just moved into a house and saw this apparition. At first, she called 911 because she thought a physical intruder had broken into her home. And often this thing was appearing as sort of a dark mist. And uh, one night, it appeared in her bedroom. And she was like, that's it. I'm moving out of this house if something can't be done. And she contacted me. Uh, on my second investigation, I was in her attic with another researcher, and he said, Josh, look, and I turned, and right between us was this big, blue-gray, misty form swirling in the air. And not only was I able to reach out and touch it, but I also was able to get a photograph of it. And so we both saw the same thing. It was something I was able to photograph. It felt cold in the middle, had this electrostatic component that kind of made the hair stand up on my knuckles. I can't say to you that that was the spirit of a dead person, but given the context of the situation, it definitely qualified as a ghost. And I was so uh, perplexed and yet excited that I thought, well, now that I know this stuff is real, I'm even more inspired to see something. But then a few more years went by before I saw anything. So it happens very, very rarely, but when it does, it changes your life. I'll bet. I'll bet. Um, just in a couple minutes uh, that remain, uh, do you have a favorite UFO story from It Was a Dark and Creepy Night? 
I do. Uh, there was a story sent to me by a man named Don Warwick from uh, Maricopa County, Arizona, 1982. He was out hunting one day at Table Mesa, and as the day got late uh, and the sun was uh, becoming a, a bit dim, he decided to head back. And as he's walking on a pathway up ahead, he saw a light with some figures moving around it, and he lifted up his rifle, and through the scope, he saw that these figures were, I'm talking typical gray aliens with the big oval heads, the large eyes, and through his scope, he looks at one of these, and it looks right back at him. A chill ran down his spine. He turned around and went running, and at that point, the creatures apparently scrambled onto the craft. The craft flew over top of him as he tripped over a cactus and injured himself. So here he is lying there. The UFO is hovering over top of him, and then it just shoots away into the sky. And I found that story amazing because it's the only story I've ever come across about a guy who literally had an alien being in the scope of his rifle, and if he'd squeezed that trigger, we may have had a dead body on our hands. Wow. Can you imagine? Uh, I mean, <laughs> that could be um, – that would just change everything if we had a body an alien body that would change everything we know we'd have to write every rewrite every textbook rethink uh, just mind blowing mind blowing well joshua uh, congratulations on it was a dark and creepy night uh leave us with a website uh yes just go to my name joshua p warren.com there is no period after the p if you go to joshua p warren.com you'll find all kinds of amazing videos and spooky photos and you can click a link to the news section to uh, find a link to It Was a Dark and Creepy Night. I really enjoyed our conversation. I can't believe I've been uh, doing this for so long, and you, uh, you and I have never connected, but uh, we won't leave it uh, so long next time. We'll have you back on soon. Hey, thank you, Richard. It's been a great pleasure. Likewise, Joshua P. Warren. My thanks to Tim Spreen for technical production. Next week, brand new show, Douglas James Cottrell, Canada's Edgar Casey with his brand new book, the Complete New Age Health Guide, plus our dear friend, Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Hey, congratulations to David Sloma. He won a pair of tickets to Follow the Truth by answering the question at followthetruth.tv. We'll offer up another pair next week. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.